Colorado, for example, their law says if you have one employee in Colorado, you must have workers comp. Well, what does that mean just for that one employee, for all your employees in Texas? What if you've chosen not to be a subscriber in Texas? We haven't seen those kinds of things litigated yet. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, president of Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. And this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. Over the last three years, many employers have become multi-state employers as work-from-home employees have relocated to other states. Sometimes the employees seek permission or at least put their employers on notice that they're moving out of state. Other times, the employer only finds out when a regulatory agency from that state comes knocking on their door. Joining me today to discuss the challenges facing companies who, one way or the other, become multi-state employers is Carolyn Harrison. Carolyn is the managing partner of the Fort Worth law firm, Pham Harrison, LLP. She is board certified in labor and employment law, and her practice focuses on employment litigation and providing employers legal and practical counsel. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Carolyn. Mike, thanks so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here today. You and I have known each other for, I don't even know how many years now. We've spoken on panels together, and I'm so impressed with what your company does and with what you're doing in this space, and I'm honored to be here today. Well, thank you for all the kind words, and the check is in the mail. So how often in your practice are you encountering employers who are maybe surprised or or, or feel like they're getting dragged into becoming multi-state employers? You know, I would say before the pandemic, almost never. It just didn't come up. And then people started deciding during the pandemic when they were working from home, oh, I'd like to move to Colorado. It's so pretty in Colorado. Let me move there and tell my employer later. And weed is legal. Right. Yeah. Uh, Well, sure. (laughs) So I would say somewhere around early 2021, I started getting just a sprinkling of comments. Help, I just found out this employee moved. What should I do? And now um, it's not so much coming up in the context of, I just found out my employee moved. It's more, I couldn't find an employee here. And so I widened my search and I'm about to hire this employee in Illinois. What do I need to know now that I've already made them a job offer and they're starting on Monday? Oh, wow. Yeah. And and we have. I mean, that's been the, I think the boon to employers over the long term from COVID is we've demonstrated that in many environments we can work remote and and it's you hear different things and it may be specific to the industry or the level where somebody is in their career because younger employees want more and more to work in an office so they're getting mentorship and those things and more seasoned employees are just especially hr people i'm hearing from hr people all the time who say i want to work remote I want to, and that's like a really hard job, I think, to do effectively remote unless you're just transactional. Uh, but they they want to work remote because they're sick of people, <laughs> and and HR will make you know everybody says, I want to go in HR because I love people, and I tell them, then don't go in HR because it'll hate make you hate people. But but you know, so there's I think there's you know we're seeing though that we can tap a, a, a much broader labor pool, uh, you know, by going remote. So I think that's going to be one of the real bonuses. But if we didn't know it, 
and we weren't prepared for it. And all of a sudden we have an employee who lives in Colorado, Washington state, New York, God forbid, what, you know, what should our, you know, the first considerations that employee does that, what do we, what obligations kick in and what should an employer be asking? Sure. So the first thing you want to do is contact probably your employment council and your payroll company, because there are different obligations that kick in with regard to uh, payroll withholding. I mean, that's the first one that comes to mind is, do you have to withhold? Does that state have state income tax? And if it does, do you meet the threshold for the amount of money that employee has been paid that you have to withhold and then send it to the state? And so um, you you're going to want to know that question. You're going to know, is your payroll company set up to help you with payroll in that state? Or do you need a different payroll company? Um, so that's an important first question. Are you required to report your new hire to some state agency? In Texas, mm -hmm. you're required to report that. Many states have a similar requirement. And so you're going to need to know, do you need to report? Some of them, for example, in New Jersey, you have 20 days to report. So you know, sometimes by the time you figure that out, you've already passed your deadline. Um, then do you need to pay into the state unemployment fund? Um, there's different requirements. Every state has a different threshold for that. How many hours does the person work? How much in wages have you paid them for the year? So those are the kinds of things you need to start thinking about. And then on top of that, many different states have different leave laws that are uh, very different. If you're used to Texas, where it's kind of the wild, wild west here, you can set whatever policies you want with regard to PTO. Uh, it's not that way in all states. And so you need to be cognizant of those things. So there's a lot of things that come into play when you have an employee in a different state. Yeah. And we'll, we'll dive into some more of those. The, I think you just probably set a lot of Texas employers antennas up when you said that they have uh, responsibilities to report new hires. I talk to employers all the time who have no clue that they're supposed to be making that report. And it's primarily used to collect, you know, to identify child support uh, deadbeats and, and, you know, help the state collect child support. But uh, I talk to employers all the time, especially small, medium-sized employers who are doing their own payroll in-house who have no idea that they're supposed to be doing that. So that's probably a whole nother episode in itself, just because people don't realize that. But a lot of states do have those responsibilities. Well, before we get into all the ins and outs, so somebody lives out of state and they're working primarily out of state, that's that's pretty clear that, you know, that, that state's probably going to have some, you know, some standards that are different than wherever the home state is and, and they need to look into it. But what about this, this phenomenon of nomad employees, people who sold their house, they're living in a RV, uh, or just, you know, moving, you know, from Airbnb to Airbnb. I see that a lot. And I've got a lot of entrepreneurial friends who run their companies remote and can do that. But I'm seeing it a lot with, with a lot of white collar skilled professionals, especially, and things like creatives and marketing people and stuff like that, where young professionals are taking advantage of the opportunity that they can work from re remote. How much at that point, where is that employer employee's primary workplace as far as reporting? Is it if you're in Texas six months of the year and you're on the road six months, is it still Texas or, or at, where does that, where would you advise an employer to start trying to figure that out? 
Well, most employees are going to need to have some kind of address. So whether that's a P.O. box or their parents' house or their best friend's house, I would look to that first of all. So if that's in Texas still, then you're probably relatively safe saying that that employee is a Texas employee. But if it's in Colorado, then you're probably going to be determined to have a Colorado employee. I haven't had the situation come up where somebody literally has no address because for banking purposes and all kinds of other purposes, you're going to need some address. So that's generally where you're going to determine that employee to live. Now, you didn't ask me this, but what about the person that has a house in Colorado and a house in Texas, right. and they're spending six months out of the year in Colorado and six months in Texas? Uh, believe it or not, some of the states have uh, a specific statute that says if the employee works 20 weeks or more in this state, then your obligations in this state kick in. Oh, wow. So it could it could depend on the state that the employee is spending half of their time in. And uh, yeah, that's, and I, I guess you another way you could look at it is you've got their mailing address, but they also have a driver's license uh, and, sure. and, or a state ID issued from someplace. And that's what they're, and yeah, you know, but the problem is, you know, if you terminate them while they live in Colorado and they decide, oh, I'm going to go file unemployment in Colorado now, you're going to have to wrangle with the, you know, the Colorado people and uh, argue that who's got jurisdiction and all of that. And how do you even go about doing that? Uh, you know, if, if the Colorado AG or whoever comes knocking on your door saying, you you know, pay up, what, what, what should an employer do when they hear from an agency like that? And either they didn't know or they are, uh, they're convinced that the employees not really spend, you know, that their primary address was Texas or Oklahoma, wherever the company's based. So the first thing I would do is contact your lawyer because, um, yes, because agencies are a big fan, whether it's the Texas Workforce Commission, the Department of Labor, uh, the state agency that handles unemployment. They love to tell an employer, oh, you don't need your lawyer involved. All you have to do is cooperate with us and, you know, don't worry about it. We'll get to the bottom of it. And many, many times that is just not the case. The agency investigators don't get things right all the time. And so if there's a question about whether your employee was really in Colorado most of the time or Texas most of the time, you're going to want a good advocate to help you parse through that. You know, sometimes, you know, if you just find out that the employee had been there most of the year, you're not really going to have an argument. And a lot of lawyers, uh, well, hopefully a lot of lawyers, I know I'll tell you, if you call me and tell me those facts and I say, hey, man, you have no argument here. You probably just need to, uh, it's going to cost you more to hire me to fight over this than to just pay it. You know, sometimes that might be the case. But if there's a real question about it, you're going to want somebody advocating for you in that situation. So the other thing that comes up, if now this other, this other state's agencies are involved and if they talk to each other, and this may be outside of your ballywick, but one of the concerns that I've had clients raise is, and it certainly it was my concern, um, do I have to register my corporation in that state to participate in their workers' comp? So, And then if they've got, if it's workers' comp or unemployment or whatever their standards are that you know, requiring me to be involved with the state, uh, do I have to register the corporation there as a, a foreign corporation and, and what? what tax obligations might I have as an entity to figure out what percentage of our revenue is generated from that state? How do those things generally work out? At what point 
do I need to worry about registering my company as, as a entity in that state? So it's highly, highly dependent on the state and what the statute in the state says. So uh, I have several nonprofit clients and those clients, for example, uh, luckily for them, get a pass on a lot of that stuff. If you're a not-for-profit, you often can have a remote employee in another state and you don't have to register for corporate income tax there. You might have to register for other purposes, but not for corporate income tax. But if you're a for-profit company um, and you have an employee in another state, a lot of times they're looking to how much you're paying that employee in wages. So you might not be actually, I'm going to take North Carolina as an example. You might not actually be conducting any business in North Carolina. You have no sales there. You're not shipping from North Carolina. You just have an employee sitting in North Carolina. But if they're looking to how much you have paid that employee, it doesn't matter whether you're actually selling products in that state. So again, you're going to have to look at each individual state to find out what the obligations are there. And some of them, you know, you might not need to register for corporate income tax, but you probably do need to register for unemployment tax purposes or for state income tax withholding purposes for your employee. Another thing that clients have brought up, and I think may be too clever for their own good, is what if I just hire these employees that are out of state through a PEO of some sort so that they're the employer of record in Washington or wherever, um, and then they're going to take care of payroll and taxes and all of that, and I don't have to worry about it. Will that work, or does that joint employer doc- might that joint employer doctrine still kick in and the state expect you? The, the the actual, you know, the person who's benefiting from the work to, to be involved. So I think that that'll probably help you out for a lot of those new employee reporting, unemployment taxes, workers comp, those kinds of things is probably going to help you out. Um, but you're still going to have to do an analysis as to the individual state's corporate income tax and whether you have to register there. Because if you're found to be a joint employer there, potentially you're going to have to register there. And then also for, there's other things where when you have a PEO and you have a joint employer situation, there's things that you could be jointly responsible for. So if your PEO is misinterpreting the leave laws, for example, in that state, you could still be on the hook for uh, making sure the employee gets paid if they don't get the appropriate PTO accredited. And then also I'll say that uh, California has some laws specifically that doesn't let employers get around that kind of thing. So uh, I don't, the other states that I would think about that I don't know for sure if they have those kinds of laws would be like New York and Illinois and New Jersey maybe, but California I know has some of those laws. Yeah. And we, you know, we've got clients all over the country and one of the things that surprises a lot of them is, you know, in Texas, all they got to do is follow the Fair Credit Reporting Act when it comes to background checks and criminal history. Um, but, and, you know, suddenly I've got an employee in California and California has got a completely different set of rules. And it, and I'm limited in California, what I can tell a, uh, an employer, even if the employer is in Texas, if that employee is, and that's, we got this whole rigmarole. Okay, where are they, you know, is the candidate just live in San Francisco right now, but he's moving to Texas for the job, and so the job's located in Texas, or is he going to work remote in, in San Francisco, which means California's law applies, which limits what I can tell the employer. 
I can't tell an employer about a murder conviction seven years and one day ago if they live in California. Uh, wow. Whereas in Texas, I can tell them about everything. And so we have to, you know, we, we jump through those hoops and try to explain it to our clients. But uh, then you get at the municipal level, San Francisco, Los Angeles, uh, New York City, they've got their own requirements and that really limit, even at the city level, what an employer can consider or what their processes have to be. And so it can be just just the hiring process can get more complicated. Then, of course, you got Colorado's pay transparency laws. So now, now you got to worry oh, yeah. about just job postings. Uh, it's it's getting really complex. I mean, I'm a big fan of the of the the federal system where we separate and all the states can be laboratories and experiment, you know, of innovation and try different things and see what works. But for a small to medium sized business, especially to start to become a, a multi state employer. Uh, even just to tap into that resource is going to be increasingly challenging. Absolutely. I, I had an employer the other day tell me that he just hired somebody in California, which he did before he called me. <laughs> and oh. he said, well, I was interviewing her and I asked her how much she made at her last job. And she said, you can't ask me that in California. Yeah. And he had no idea. He's right. never interviewed anyone in California. But yes, there's there's all kinds of laws like that that you start running into. Yeah, and, and the question is, and it depends a lot because a lot of it's never been tested litigation-wise with multi-state employers, is yes. which law applies. Does it is it the law designed to protect that consumer in that state? And even if you're not in that state and the job is here, you know, you know, can I ask in California, Illinois, places like that about salary? Because I, this job's here. I don't care about their law. They can't they don't have any jurisdiction over me. But the problem is, is do you really want to fight with their civil rights organization or whatever, you know, uh, agency it is to to establish that? And do you want to be the test case and those kind of issues? So uh, it's it's definitely interesting. So if I have as an employer, if I create uh, an agreement, let's say, with an employee that says, you know, uh, you know, for all purposes related to your employment, your place of employment is our address here in Texas, even if you're in another state. Will that help help me at all if I'm dealing with these agencies in other states? Probably not, because they're going to look to where the employee is actually located. Um, it might fly in some other situations, such as your non-compete agreement. If you have a non-compete in a state that will allow you to have a non-compete and you put the log um, as being Texas law, sometimes that'll work. But again, you're right back in the same boat of having to look at each state and find out, you know, um, if you have an employee in uh, Oklahoma, for example, which doesn't like non-competes. A lot of people don't know that because they're right across the border. Oklahoma doesn't like non-competes. If you have an Oklahoma employee and you say that Texas law governs, is Oklahoma going to allow you to hold that employee to the non-compete? Then we have to get into all kinds of crazy legal arguments about which law is um, going to govern the day. And does the uh, public policy of that state prohibit you from enforcing a non-compete against their employee? Um, and then you have California that just passed one that explicitly says you cannot have the law of another state apply to a non-compete in California. And it really, once that, once you know, it's like most non-competes, you get into the question, do I really want to spend the money enforcing this non-compete? And it's bad enough when this person lives in the same county as you do, uh, as your your organization is. And but 
then when they're in another state altogether, do I really want to hire counsel in that place to make our arguments for us and defend? Are we really going to spend that much money on a non-compete? Which often, you know, I still would guess 60% of the non-competes out there are overly broad and they're going to be difficult to enforce. And, uh, and even if you do enforce them, it may cost you more than the risk of what you would have lost if, if they'd come in. Yes. And I'll just like, this is not the topic of the day, but Caroline's two cents. Most employers need a non-solicit, a customer non-solicit, and just put a customer non-solicit in place instead of a non-compete. And most states, you're still going to be able to enforce a customer non-solicit. There you go. Well, and that's that's a, an easier approach because it's it's really clear what, you, what you're doing. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative. Premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you don't absolutely love your current background and drug screening partner, maybe 2024 is the year to explore your options. If so, please reach out to us. We're here for you at imperativeinfo.com. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select Episode 127 and enter the keyword multi-state. That's M-U-L-T-I-S-T-A-T-E. And now back to my conversation with Carolyn Harrison. So if 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 that agreement may be skeptical, should I, as an employer, at least have a policy regarding remote employer employees, um, locations, you know, when you change, you've got to tell us things, what kind of things should be in, uh, my policy regarding remote employment? That's a great question. And almost nobody has a policy like this right now because it hasn't, hasn't been an issue, but I think it would be a really smart idea to have a policy that says that you cannot move out of the state without informing us and getting, uh, permission, and maybe permission isn't exactly the right word, but you don't have to let your employee move out of state. Well, you can't physically stop them, but you don't have to keep them employed if they move out of state. That's your choice as an employer. And there's no protection for an employee. They don't get to keep their job because they want to move to Colorado from Texas. So that's a legitimate reason to let them go. And if you have a policy, it makes it even easier to point to your policy and say, no, we don't employ anyone outside of the state or you didn't get permission first. So we're going to separate the employment relationship at this point. Yeah. And like we're licensed as private investigators in Texas, which is weird because we're an HR consulting firm and, you know, background checks. But the law requires if I sell background checks, I've got to be a licensed PI. And so if I were to allow one of my analysts to move to Oklahoma or Washington or wherever, I would have to go register as a PI in those states and, and, and which are completely different standards. And it's another set of taxes and, and fees plus that register that employee up there. And so we made the decision in 2021, we were remote. And when really in the, in that summer, when we realized this is really working for us, my employees like it, and we're not going to come back to the office full time and ultimately ever, um, I made the decision, you can live anywhere in Texas. It's a big state and that's great, but we're not, we're not going to become a multi-state employer. 
And I lost one employee over that because her husband got a not job in another place, but I would have lost her anyway, pre-COVID. I mean, the reality sure. is when we were all in the office, I would have lost them. Um, but for my even in-state employees who are fully remote, we set some poli- we wrote our policy and it, it, it requires that if we have an all hands meeting in person, it'll be at the company's headquarters and we'll give at least 72 hours notice and preferably longer if we can uh, before the meeting. And then if it's got to be in person for some reason and they have to travel at their own expense to, to the meeting. Um, What other kind of things, just remote employees in general uh, and, you know, especially, you know, that would include multi-state what other things might ought to be in a, a remote work policy that you that you think we employers should think about and, and maybe often miss so uh, first of all let me say in texas you can get away with that travel at your own expense in california not so much you'd have to pay the employee to, if you require their presence and some other states might have some laws like that i haven't i haven't found them yet but i know california does i have a couple of employers with California locations. Um, and I have a good California employment lawyer that I work with. Uh, but other things I think you should consider are having some kind of agreement about the equipment that you're going to provide, mm. what expenses you're going to pay for at their house. And then sometimes you run into childcare issues. Some people, um, over the, since the pandemic have, uh, once their kids went back to school, sometimes they still don't maybe want to pay for daycare or they have a sick child and, um, they're working from home. And I think it's better to spell out in your policy that if you're going to work from home, that you need to have some alternate childcare, um, or, um, parental care. Some people are, you know, at home taking care of parents that are elderly. Um, But I think it's important to spell that out in your policy. And then also um, spell out if you have sensitive information that if you have personally identifiable information or HIPAA protected information, have an agreement that spells out what they can and can't do, who can have access to that information, what they're going to do with it. Do they have to keep their computer locked, password protected when they're um, not actively working on it, those kinds of things. And then return of the equipment. How are they going to return the equipment to you? How long do they have to return it after they are um, no longer working for you? And then another thing that I've seen come up recently is what about if your uh, remote worker's computer goes down? Can they just use their own computer then to do your work? Uh, Because you know, some people might think that's logical, but then now you have your data on your employee's personal computer and what are you going to do with that? So you do need to sometimes think about those types of uh, contingencies if you're going to have a remote workforce. And even those can be affected by what state. California requires employers to reimburse for those internet expenses and those home telephone and all those things. And we do. Exactly. I mean, all my people are Texas, but, you know, we, we, we started, uh, you know, as soon as we sent everybody home uh, under, you know, make, you know, giving them all a stipend basically to, to, you know, to cover their internet expense. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we've sent people desks, uh, you know, if somebody didn't have a place that they were comfortable working in as far as, uh, you know, set up, uh, you know, and they need a desk or a chair and certainly we send them all their equipment and all of that. And that's in Texas, and it's easy. Uh, in other states, 
who knows, you know, that if, you know, if there's different laws for PTO, for instance, and, you know, in Texas, we don't have mandatory paid sick leave and, and, and those kinds of things, but some states do. And so you got to have a separate PTO bank for that yes. one employee. Yeah. And you have to make sure your payroll company is set up to track PTO correctly because um, some states uh, like New Jersey, you they accrue it, they accrue like one hour for every 30 hours. Some other states like Illinois, it's one hour for every 40 hours. So you have to have that all set up so it's accruing properly because the other interesting thing about those PTO laws in other states is a lot of times you can't just say, okay, you get 80 hours on January 1 because they're set up to where you specifically have to accrue at a certain rate. And that's what the state wants you to do. They don't want you to just gift them all these hours at one time. And in some states, your regular, your non-sick PTO, your regular PTO is required to be paid out on separation, right? And right. Texas, we don't do that. And exactly. you know, necessarily, you know, or at least it's not obligatory. Uh, and so just keeping track of that and that may you know, affect what you think the total comp of this employee is too. I mean, you know, and, Absolutely. uh, if this person lives in, you know, a state that look, uh, oh, I, I, he can live there and the market where I can recruit this employee in this other state and the market rate for this job is a lot lower there and look how much money I'm saving. But then you get into what their benefit standards are in that state, uh, and PTO accrual and all of those kinds of things. And just just their workers comp rates. Uh, you know, we, you know, there are places where workers oh, sure. comp is crazy and, and, and Texas is, you know, the, the one state that doesn't require workers comp. And so suddenly I guess it's, I haven't seen it come up, but if you've got one employee in some state that requires workers comp, I guess you have to subscribe to workers comp in that state. Well, that's a good, that's a good th um, example because Colorado, for example, their law says if you have one employee in Colorado, you must have workers comp. Well, what does that mean just for that one employee, for all your employees in Texas? Mm. What if you've chosen not to be a subscriber in Texas? I, I, we haven't seen those kinds of things litigated yet. And so the idea around leave and those kind of benefits, how do leave, you know, we've touched on some of that with PTO, but, um, you know, state-specific FMLA, which we really don't have much, you know, in Texas, uh, but in other places they may. What's the, what are the, what's the range of impact uh, there uh, with, with just leave policies state to state? Well, um, I'm going to go with New Jersey just because okay. I recently did that for, uh, for a client. We looked at New Jersey and New Jersey has its own state FMLA that is intended to sort of fill gaps um, and has different requirements. I think it's a thousand hours instead of 1200 hours that an employee has to work. And so you really have to be cognizant of those things. And then New Jersey also has a, um, a state subsidized short-term disability policy that, um, you pay into and then you get to draw on it if you are out on FMLA leave or some other qualifying leave. Um, it's really just a matter of um, making sure you're aware of all those laws and making sure you have some tracking mechanism and you're not stepping outside of them because the other, beyond just an employee didn't get the the time off, then you're opening yourself up to litigation for violating the FMLA laws of that state. And, you know, what can that be? It could be back pay, penalties, reinstatement, attorney's fees when you get into litigation over that. 
And there are federal districts that are friendlier to employers than maybe other federal districts on the left coast. And so, you know, if you get into some sort of litigation related to your employment practices where that employees lives, you may suddenly find yourself subject to a different jurisdictional issue than, than you anticipated. I guess you could end up defending a case, an employment, you know, a federal employment law issue in California uh, that you, you know, may, may not have anticipated. And that's going to be not inexpensive probably. Absolutely. Not, not only are the lawyers hourly rates more expensive in California, but the, but the, uh, the laws are much less friendly to employers in California. We talked about registering our employees, and there's obviously the issues of, you know, some states have uh, state uh, employment taxes, which, you know, pew, pew, we're in Texas, they don't have that. But, you know, there's withholding responsibilities in those states. And again, if you've got a great payroll company that does all that for you, but um, it goes back to another thing to investigate though if, if especially if we're doing you know we're using quickbooks payroll for our company of 50 or 75 people that works great except now we've got to make sure we bought the right modules and add it in to make sure that we're, we're doing all our filings and all of that yes and then you're looking at you know potential penalties if you didn't withhold and if you didn't withhold in the state for the employee's income tax and then the employee doesn't pay it guess what? You're on the hook for it as the employer. And so kind of to wrap all of that up, if we get into a position where, you know, and it's going to be a lot, probably a larger employer where you don't figure it out, um, or at least where HR is not brought in or somebody, you know, maybe the hiring manager kind of figures out and they don't, you know, or the, the direct supervisor figures it out and they don't tell anybody. But if, if if the first con time that the company really realizes that somebody is fully remote is when I hear from an agency in that state, hey, this person you laid off last week has filed for unemployment, is ignorance a defense in those cases? I mean, can we say, hey, we've got a policy that says they told us they had to tell us, you know, they had to, you know, go through this process to get approved to work, be an out-of-state employee. They They didn't do that. Is that any kind of defense for an employer? It's probably not a defense. It's probably going to help you avoid extra penalties, maybe. Maybe you just get the actual amount you should have paid to begin with, and then you don't get hit with penalties. Um, it might help for that. But otherwise, no, you're probably still going to have to pay what you would have owed. Oh, okay. Well, uh, lots to think about. And uh, I, I appreciate you giving me your time today. Thank you, Caroline. It's been a pleasure, Mike. I've, I've really enjoyed it. And thanks for having me on. And thank you for listening. Whatever your state you're in, you can comment on this episode or search our previous episodes at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and you can reach him at robmakespods.com. And thank you to Imperatus Marketing Coordinator, Marianne Hernandez, keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I hope your holiday season is bright and full of friends and family. I'll see you next week. And until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.